program. Old fashioned radio for a new generation. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, John. You know that. Yay, Tom! <laughs> I love it in Flint! You're very astute, Tom. Tom, easy question. I'll debate Andy Dillon on your show. Well, uh, that's a very good question. Uh, Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm all right, Tom. How are you? Hey, lucky day, Mr. Sumner. Ciao, Tom. How are you today? That's a good question. <laughs> Hi, this is actor, comedian Jonah Pody, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers, uh, I mean, I'm sorry, what's his name? Oh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom, how you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right. The Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Our fellow Americans. Right now, the COVID-19 vaccines are available to millions of Americans. And soon... They will be available to everyone. The science is clear. These vaccines will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. They could save your life. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. That's the first step to ending the pandemic and moving our country forward. It's up to you. The Tom Sumner Program is made possible with support from Seth David Radwell, a recent guest on the program and author of American Schism, How the Two Enlightenments Hold a Secret to Healing Our Nation, released in July 2021. As Publishers Weekly writes in its recent glowing review of American Schism, business executive Radwell's epic debut examines the historical influences that have led to what he sees as the collapse of politics in the United States. Seth Radwell makes the case that the current chasm between the American right and left can be traced back to the 18th century's Age of Enlightenment and the basic tenets of liberty, equality, and reason. American Schism provides a historical perspective that can help bridge current day divides. American Schism by Seth David Radwell is available at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and wherever books are sold. For more information, go to AmericanSchismBook.com. program. Hi, this is Gretchen Whitmer and you're listening to the Tom Sumner program. And welcome back everybody. This is the Tom Sumner program. I uh guest this hour is an NYU award-winning historian with a new book called Cuba, an American history, and uh, my guest is uh, Ada Ferrer, and she joins me by phone. Hi, Ada. Welcome to the show. Hi, Tom. Thanks for having me. Um, Cuba, an American history. What makes a, a, a book about Cuba an American history? Great question. Uh, Cuba and the U.S. have had a, a long entangled history of, of, of relations and misunderstandings and and so on you know for centuries long before uh, Cuba became independent even before the US became independent so 
there's no way to write a history of Cuba that doesn't also pay significant attention to the U.S. So that's one way that this is Cuba and American history. I also like the title because given the fact that the two countries are so connected and that the U.S. has had such an enormous impact on Cuba, it seems to me that a, that a history of Cuba can also serve as a mirror to U.S. history. So it, the book, I think, provides readers with a way to see the U.S. itself kind of from the outside in, through the eyes of, of someone else. You know, is I'm curious about how much proximity plays a role in the interactions between the U.S. and Cuba, but also I wanted to bring up on that point of um, uh, sort of American history that pop culture would have us believe that if we went to Cuba, it would be like stepping into the U.S. in the 1950s. Yeah. Is is yeah. that the way it really is, or is is that just a, uh, a, a fun Hollywood picture? It's a fun Hollywood picture. It's not like that at all. I remember when... Uh, when Barack Obama went to Cuba in 2016, and the U.S. media was covering Cuba all the time. All of them said, almost all of them had a line that said, Cuba, an island frozen in time. And they would show pictures of the old, you know, American Cadillacs and Chevys and Studebakers from the 1950s, the crumbling buildings and so on. But, um, you know, no time doesn't stand still for any individual. It doesn't stand still for any country. Uh, Cuba is nothing like it was in the 1950s or 60s. It's the, the revolution has transformed it enormously. Time has transformed it. People have changed. There's been mass migration. Um, yeah, so I think that is a Hollywood illusion completely. And in terms of proximity, I don't know if you want me to talk about that now. It's yeah. hugely important for the relationship. Yeah, that you know, it's interesting. Thomas Jefferson, you know, not long after American independence, talked about imagining that said that his ideal map of the United States would incorporate Canada to the north and Cuba to the south. So he thought the U.S. would reach all the way down to Cuba's southern border. So it was always Im imagined physically, geographically, as part of the U.S. by American leaders. And I think to us, you know, in the 1820s, people, you know, statesmen like John Quincy Adams were saying, without, without acquiring Cuba, we can never fulfill our potential as a republic. Cuba is necessary for the survival and vitality of the United States. And people now think that it just sounds strange, you know, why, why would Cuba be so important? But actually, if you look at a map and you look at the location of Cuba, it makes sense for 19th century American leaders to have thought that. Cuba is situated where the Gulf of Mexico meets the Caribbean Sea and the Atlantic Ocean. If you look at where the port of New Orleans is on a map, um, and you look at where Cuba is, you realize that all trade coming out of New Orleans in the 19th century by ship and going up to the eastern seaboard and to Europe and to Latin America had to go right by that stretch between Havana and, you know, and the, and the, and the United States. So American leaders thought that if someone else controlled Cuba, 
they had the potential to cripple American commerce. So to avoid that, they thought their best bet was to make Cuba part of the United States and to control that that seaward uh, route. Is is it um, is my memory correct in in believing that it was something like from the Florida Keys to Cuba is about ninety miles? That's right. Yeah. Yeah, sometimes people say 80-something, sometimes 90. I tried measuring it on a map and got a little tiny bit over 100, but yes, in that vicinity. And, and is Cuba an island? Cuba's an island. It's actually a large island. It's the largest island in the Caribbean. If you were to kind of, you know, it's a very horizontal island. If you were to place it vertically alongside the eastern seaboard, it covers the distance between, say, New York and Savannah, Georgia. So a long island. Um, yeah, see, I was terrible with geography, Ada. And, yeah. <laughs> and and I, I just always imagine Cuba as being attached somehow to South America. I don't know why. No, it's, um, yeah, it's not. It's the... It really is just right below uh, the Florida, you know, the, the Florida Peninsula and uh, near New Orleans, near the Gulf of, near the Mexico, the Yucatan Peninsula that uh, that juts out into the Gulf of Mexico. And then south of Cuba is Jamaica and um, further south is Central America and Panama. But no, it's not, it's not attached. And, and geography, I'm not a geography buff either, but the, you know, working on Cuba makes you really aware of it because it, it's almost like in the 19th century, geography was almost like destiny. That's how the Americans tended to see it, that the U.S. would become American as a function of that geography. John Adams said Cuba is like uh, an apple on a tree, and once it ripens and falls, it will fall to us. Now, your book covers the time uh, from the discovery by Columbus to the election of Joe Biden. Um, mm -hmm. But I want to ask about that. Columbus always seemed to be running into places on his way to the West Indies. Um, did he ever go any place on purpose? <laughs> uh, well, I, you know, when certainly not the not the first time he came to the, you know, what came to be called the New World, but then you know he made four voyages. So, in the last three voyages, he did return to some of the places he had been to the first time on purpose. So, so there was a little bit of that, but you know, he died, you know, still insisting that that he was you know that he had reached the east that these were the indies and uh he made his his sailors take you know take vows to that so yeah he was you know and of course from his misunderstanding comes the very term indian right so they they arrived in the western hemisphere and because they thought they were in the indies in the east indies they called the the people they met indians but that is just was just a function of his of his gaffe of his mistake. Um, <laughs> the, you know, they, they, the people that 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 were in Cuba before you know before Columbus and who were there when he arrived came to be called came to be known as the Tainos, and uh, a, a, you know a fascinating group um, that has had an you know an enormous impact in in Cuban culture, but even beyond Cuban culture, they had systems. Uh, that then shaped the Spanish 
colonial project in all of Latin America. They had musical instruments that are still used in contemporary Caribbean music. They had words that then became, you know, that are that are really common in the Spanish language. And some of them even made it into English. So, for example, the word hurricane comes from the Taino word for hurricane. Um, in, in Spanish, you say huracán, because, you know, people didn't know hurricanes in, in Europe. They, 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 they encountered them for the first time uh, in the New World, and they used that indigenous name um, to label it. Yeah, I remember uh, uh, talking with a guy who had uh, moved into Michigan, where I live, um, from Australia, and he said, boy, you people in the States have some weather. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. He was talking about hurricanes and tornadoes yeah. and you know yeah. all that stuff. Yeah. He said, we don't have all that, you know, in, you in Australia. But, um, right. you know, over the last at least couple or three presidential administrations, there's been talk, and I imagine it's it's popped up from time to time ever since the 60s, and uh, and President Kennedy's, you know, somewhat well-known break with Cuba, that mm-hmm. we would normalize relations with Cuba at some point. Um, and, and I guess my question is, what does that really mean, and have relations with Cuba ever been normal? That's a, a great question. Um, have they ever been normal? You know, it all depends on how you define normal, I suppose. But um, certainly before the revolution, the two countries were allies, but um, they were allies in a relationship in which Cuba was very subservient. And uh, one of the signs of, you know, what you might call that abnormality is something called the Platt Amendment, which I think every, I mean, every Cuban knows about it. I think every American should know about it as well. And at the end of the 19th century, uh, when Cuba was fighting its wars of independence against Spain from 1868 to 1898, the U.S. intervened at the end of that, and that became known as the Spanish-American War. And the U.S. won, and then it remained in Cuba as an occupying power. So it ran the government, determined budgets. The, Cuba was ruled by a U.S. governor for four years. And the U.S. said it would leave only if the Cubans accepted something called the Platt Amendment. And basically the Platt Amendment gave the U.S. the right to intervene in in Cuba militarily without the invitation of the Cuban government. So that's not, you don't think of that as a very kind of normal relationship between two countries. And that was an essential part of, of that relationship for many decades. It's that, you know, it's that Platt Amendment and then the tre- a treaty that followed that gave the U.S. Guantanamo, for instance. That's why you have this strange little piece of land that is, that, you know, that's a naval base and that's in Cuba but is not Cuban territory. Um, it limited the ability of the Cuban government to incur debt or to sign treaties with other countries. So, so I guess so I wouldn't call that normal, I suppose. So, so that's one sign of how the relationship has always been uh, really complicated and not and not straightforward. And then, of course, you know, after Fidel Castro and the revolution, it would get not normal in a in different kind of way, right? In 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 an opposite kind of way. More about Cuba with NYU historian Ada Ferrer. 
straight ahead. Everybody's doing a brand new dance now. Hi, this is Mark Farner, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. While we've been staying safe at home, scientists have been on a journey. The destination, a COVID-19 vaccine. This journey began decades ago with research into other coronaviruses. Scientists built from there with months of research and development, cooperation with other experts worldwide, and clinical trials on tens of thousands of volunteers of diverse race, age, and health status. They arrived at a safe, effective vaccine and hundreds of thousands in Michigan have already been vaccinated. But the next step is ours. We need to get the vaccine when we can. Keep wearing masks correctly and taking precautions until we reach our destination, freedom from COVID-19 and getting back to the lives we love. Discover the facts for yourself at michigan.gov slash COVID vaccine. A message from the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. The Tom Sumner Program plays host to the best political roundtable on radio every Wednesday from 10 a.m. to noon. Armchair Politics features great commentary and analysis about the headlines from local, state, and national politics with an alumni of world-class pundits, plus quotes, tweets, and those weird and wacky stories we call the X-Files. If it's Wednesday, catch Armchair Politics on the Tom Sumner Program. East Village Magazine is the monthly neighborhood magazine read all over Flint. With support from grants, donations, and advertisers, East Village Magazine's talented local writers give you an in-depth look at local news, issues, and people that make Flint, Flint. Copies of East Village Magazine are available at many of your favorite shops and restaurants around Flint or online at eastvillagemagazine.org. East Village Magazine, community-focused and community-supported. Discoveries. They happen when we least expect them in places we thought we knew. And discoveries have a way of teaching us a little more about ourselves along the way. Welcome to Flint and Genesee County, where up north meets down south. Home to Michigan's largest county park system and a vibrant culture. A place filled with discoveries we've yet to make. Throughout acres of beautiful lakes, wetlands, and woods, and in the diverse city beyond where the uplifting melodies of gospel choirs fill the air, where the work of renowned artists color the galleries and museums, where the fresh fruits and vegetables at the downtown farmer's market awaken our senses, and where the cultural center and planetarium broaden our view of the world. Let's spend a few days enjoying the wonders of Flint and Genesee County, where the joy of discovery is pure Michigan. Your trip begins at michigan.org. Technical assistance for the Tom Sumner Program is provided by Swiftlet Technology, engineering and IT services at swiftlet.technology. I know of a place where you never get harmed. 
a magical place with magical charms indoors 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 take it away And the Tom Sumner Program. Hi, this is Deb Cherry, Genesee County Treasurer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Radio Show. More about Cuba with NYU historian Ada Ferrer. Straight ahead. Was it the revolution that, that undid the Platt Amendment, or had that already been overturned somewhere along the line? Yeah, it was overturned uh, in, the 19, uh, in the 1930s, in, 1930, in 1934, and it was basically for two reasons. One is that Cubans were very mobilized against it. There had been a smaller, unsuccessful, or a short-lived revolution, I should say, in 1933, and so, and and Cubans were demanding the end of it, so that contributed to it. Also, that FDR, you know, had had come to power, and he he was trying to chart a new path forward with Latin America. He wanted fewer interventions, military and political. There had been dozens of interventions in Latin America um, in the first three decades of of the 20th century. So he also wanted to end the Platt Amendment. So for that reason, it was. It was eliminated in um, in 1934. And then, what precipitated um, JFK's famous break with with Cuba? There are all these romantic stories about him sending yeah. aides out to buy Cuban cigars and then you know signing right. the declarations and so on. But yeah. but what yeah. really? What really precipitated that? Well, you know, Eisenhower had begun to do it before, and then it um, Kennedy solidified it. And uh, what has happened before was uh, was the Bay of Pigs. So, um, you know, the the very famous debacle of the U.S. sending an invasion force to topple Fidel Castro that failed spectacularly. And, um, you know, I think that one of the most interesting periods in Cuban history is those first uh, two and a half years of the revolution of 1959. Americans often think that the revolution was Fidel Castro's revolution, it was a communist revolution, but in the beginning it wasn't. Uh, Fidel Castro was one leader among many. Um, by 59, he was the most prominent and, and the, the critical, the central figure, certainly. But it's the, the revolution wasn't communist uh, in the beginning, and most people who supported it um, weren't communist either. So it became communist over those two years in this, in this really interesting dynamic where, you know, People are pushing for change. 
Fidel Castro is being a, a master of, of communication and, and politics and, and leading kind of a leftward turn. And also this dynamic that takes hold between Cuba and the U.S., where they start to have conflicts and tensions, and each party does something to up the ante each time, and then the other party responds in kind, and it just kind of all falls apart. Um, there's one interesting example in, in late summer of 1960, where um, the U.S. is... Uh, kind of limit, um, you know, it's just tr trying to, to make it harder for uh, for Fidel Castro. And, uh, and the U.S. Uh, is refusing to sell oil to, the, to Cuba, and so Cuba buys oil from the Soviet Union. The problem is that the only refineries in Cuba are American-owned. But the American refineries won't, you know, won't refine Soviet oil, and it just, the situation just keeps escalating. And then, you know, Cuba nationalized the the oil companies, nationalized American uh, sugar plantations, nationalized American um, utility companies, and so on. Uh, and so each each thing like that kind of gets, you know, makes it makes the other country do something more forceful, more forceful until you get things like the Bay of Pigs invasion and the breaking of, of diplomatic relations. It just escalates. And I was going to ask you about how the Soviets got interested in in Cuba to begin with, if it had something to do with its proximity to the states, because Cuba certainly um, played host to some of the more dramatic events in the during the Cold War. But um, yeah. and I'm thinking about, of course, the the, the Cuban Missile Crisis. But right. But was was it some kind of strategic thing by the Soviets, or were they really just drawn in by selling oil? I think it was more of a strategic thing by the Cubans than than by the Soviets. I think the, <laughs> interesting. I think the yeah. I think the Soviets were they were taken by surprise by everything happening in in Cuba. You know, they didn't direct the revolution initially, certainly, and they were surprised to suddenly find an ally 90 miles from the coast of the U.S. Once they found it, they used it strategically, certainly. But I think the, the impetus and the origin comes more from, from the Cubans turning to them. And I think part of the reason they turned to them was, uh, you know, in this kind of increasingly hostile dynamic that begins to take shape with the U.S., so the U.S. doesn't sell them oil. Okay, well, we know where we can get oil, that, you know, that kind of thing. And um, and Fidel Castro is an interesting figure. He always loved to be dramatic and provocative. And one of the things he does early on, you know, the revolution, he comes to power in January of 59. In February 1960, he invites a Soviet minister to visit Havana and to bring an, ex an exhibition about Soviet culture and technology. And Fidel Castro hosts them, takes all these pictures of him, takes them on a tour of the island. The Soviet minister, Migoyan, wears a straw Cuban peasant hat with the word Cuba on it, and so on, you know, so on and so forth. And it was almost like, you know, Fidel Castro kind of loving the, the, the idea of, like, putting that in the face of, of the United States. And, of course, the U.S. 
panicked when they saw that and there were all these meetings. What are we going to do? And we go, yeah, and we go, yeah. And so, um, so I think it was more the Cubans, more Cuban directed than Soviet directed. That's interesting. It, you know, it seemed like toward the end of the Obama administration that um, travel restrictions were all but lifted um, with regard to Cuba, and and then it never quite got completed after the election of Donald Trump. Um, right. Or 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 did it? Where does where does that stand now? And what's likely to happen now that Biden is president? Right. So, you know, Obama wanted to normalize relations with uh, with Cuba, and that included things like easing travel restrictions. It was still impossible because of the embargo for Americans to go to Cuba as as declared tourists. But Obama increased the opportunities for what's called people to people travel. So you could go, say, on a tour to study or not to study to, to learn about, say, Cuban jazz or or what have you, right? So there were more opportunities for that kind of travel. You couldn't say to the State Department or the Treasury, I'm going to Cuba to go to beach to the beaches. <laughs> so you had to have this kind of cultural, uh, ostensibly cultural reason. But but still, you know, there were tour there were cruise ships going, the number of Americans grew uh, traveling to the island grew exponentially in those years. When Trump came to power, he uh, he put limits on on all that. And um, he he made it impossible to, um, for example, to stay at hotels that were run by by the Cuban military, and many of them are run by the Cuban military. Uh, he stopped charter flights, uh, sorry, commercial flights to actually commercial and charter flights to cities not in Havana, so people couldn't go to other destinations. He he enacted all these rules like that. He made it harder to send money by, you know, rel- for relatives and friends to send money to people on the island. And when Biden was running for election, he said he was going to reverse the Trump policies that most hurt the Cuban people. So, you know, I think most most people understood that to mean that he would reverse restrictions on like sending money to family primarily on remittances and so on but he hasn't done that yet um i think you know he's had a lot on his plate (laughs) obviously coming into power in the into the white house in the middle of the pandemic you know after the january 6th events afghanistan everything um but then um yeah so he just he's been acting very very slowly on on cuba and there used to be, as I remember, um, strong resistance from Cubans living in the U.S., especially in Florida, any time mm-hmm. there were discussions about lifting the embargo. Is resistance mm-hmm. to making, you know, to, to trying to develop Cuba as an ally, is, is resistance to that still as strong as it used to be, or is that waning? Well, I think it's in in many ways it's as strong as it used to be, but it did change when Obama was in office. Actually, people, a majority of people in in South Florida supported the change in policy. So I feel like Cuban American opinion um, is not as immovable as 
as people assume. Um, Obama was able to move it. I don't know if that was just um, his particular gift, the particular moment. But then Trump, when Trump came in, the you know Cuban Americans followed his line. They loved his line. <laughs> Not all of them, but they 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 loved the idea of. Um, yeah, of of sticking it to the the Cuban government to to put it to put it bluntly. And one of the things that I think is most interesting about Miami is or South Florida is that a majority of Cuban Americans there have come to the island. I mean, sorry, have come to the U.S. fairly recently. So the biggest sector of that community arrived in the U.S. after 1995. So it's not like the old guard that was around during Kennedy or during Johnson or or, or Carter and Reagan and so on. It's a, it's a it's a new um, it's a it's a new and changing community, and most of them still have family on the island. Uh, they want to help their family on the island, but they are they have this deep deep resentment for the Cuban government, and I think that above all determines their their policy inclinations uh, given all of that is it is it within president biden's ability and and talents to get those people on board for just opening travel between cuba and the u.s I don't think right now. First, there's COVID and Cuba's in terrible shape. Yeah. And things are getting worse here, so there's that. But also, um, I'm not sure that he's the person to move them on this, uh, which is unfortunate. I think that he could restart remittances and get people behind that. Uh, because all, you know, Cuban Americans however much they hate the government, they still want to help their family and they want to be able to send money. It's so difficult right now. And there's some companies that are doing it, but because of the new restrictions, it's become so expensive and um, so prohibitive that, 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 that I think easing, easing the restrictions on, on sending money would be something that he could get uh, support for. And that would make a difference, in, you know, in, in for for many Cubans, not for all Cubans, because not all Cubans receive money from abroad. Do you think the uh, the Vice President Kamala Harris would be a better emissary for uh, talks with with Cubans and with Cuban Americans? Uh, perhaps. Um, but no, I'm not even convinced that that would work. I think. I think the I think a, a whole new tone is necessary, a whole a whole new perspective. I think you know, I think one of the things that Obama did well is to just is to just put it really bluntly that this hardline policy on Cuba has been in effect for 60 years and it hasn't worked. So you can't, you know, he said you can't keep doing the same thing and expect a different result. I mean, he just used common sense. And I feel like, um, unfortunately, like Biden, the Biden administration is, is relying kind of on older 
platitudes about Cuba. That said, I mean, he's he's making an effort. He's been meeting with Cuban-American leaders regularly. But I think it's telling that he's meeting with Cuban-American leaders only from South Florida. You know, by doing that, it's almost like he's saying it's a domestic political issue. It's about the Florida elections instead of, uh, you know, having broader conversations with with other Cubans on a diverse ideological spectrum, having discussions with other nations. I think one of the problems with U.S. policy historically regarding Cuba is that it's so unilaterally, it's so unilateral, and a lot of the world rejects things like the embargo. It's voted against almost, uh, you know, overwhelmingly at the, at the U.N. Uh, whenever that vote happens. So uh, I think the U.S. would do a lot better to work with the European Union, with, Latin, with more Latin American countries, um, to, try to, 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 to try to have a sensible Cuba policy. It doesn't mean, you know, a pro-Castro Cuba policy, but it's just something that, that, that allows the needle to move. No one, you know, people in Cuba want change, but no one wants an explosion or a civil war. Right? You want you want peaceful change, and to get peaceful change, you have to be willing to dialogue and to talk and to bring other people into the conversation. How are uh, relations between Cuba and Russia in these uh, years since the so-called fall of the Soviet Union? Yeah, well, you know, when, when the Soviet Union fell, Cuba was it was the worst economic crisis. Um, in history in many ways. It just lost most of its trade, its resources, its subsidies, didn't have oil, etc. It's interesting that when Obama began the opening to Cuba, the, the, you know, one country that seemed to be dead set against it was Russia. Uh, It didn't want the U.S. coming into Cuba again and investing and, 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 and profiting and so on. So, uh, since Trump has reversed the Obama opening, uh, the Russians have become once you know have become more involved in Cuba uh, financially by investing. With COVID, they're providing supplies and assistance. They're sending oil. Uh, a few years ago, they sent what was it? Um, oh, I can't remember if it was some lo- unusually large diamond or gem of some kind. <laughs> to symbolize the friendship between the Cuban and Russian people, and it's displayed prominently in the lobby of the Cuban capital. So they, the Russians love the rift between Cuba and the U.S. So I Russia's investing, China's investing, but the U.S. isn't because it can't because of the embargo. I was, I was going to ask, because you, you touched on it a few minutes ago, Otto, when you said the... Um, pandemic was um, especially tough in Cuba, mm-hmm. how much they're able to react and, and address issues of the pandemic domestically and and if they have to turn outward, who they turn to. But it sounds like uh, mm-hmm. like like Russia has been stepping up with vaccines and yeah. maybe other things. And Mexico, actually, um, it's interesting because Cuba began the pandemic our, our, their initial response to the pandemic was excellent. Um, they put in in place, you know, really robust public health measures. They began research on the vaccine. They sent doctors to help 
in places like northern Italy when Italy was hit very hard at the beginning of the pandemic. It's really, it's only after, um, it's only in, in, in this year uh, that the situation got worse. Um, they were, Cuba was able to develop two of its own vaccines, and it's using that uh, to vaccinate its own citizens, including they started vaccinating children just um, maybe last week or, you know, just very recently. And I think about 50% of the population is now fully vaccinated. So they've made, they've definitely made progress with the vaccines. The problem is their infrastructure is just destroyed. There hasn't been investment in infrastructure uh, very much. So hospitals are in terrible shape. There's gasoline shortages. So there's no gasoline for ambulances to pick up patients. There's severe test shortages. So the you know getting an accurate number of the cases has been hard over the last um, you know couple of months. Uh, there's shortage of basic medicines like painkillers and antibiotics, um, and so on and so forth. There's a shortage of syringes, even though they have the vaccine. So all that has just hampered uh, the res- the response. And they had opened to tourism um, earlier this year in part because of this, you know, because the economic situation was so bad. But it's interesting that the first really bad spikes occurred uh, precisely in areas near the tourist resorts because you had local workers who would go to the tourist resort and then go home and then they would bring it back. So uh, so it's a, 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 I, 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 did, I haven't checked this week, but recently it was in like the a couple of weeks ago, it was in the top five of hotspots around the world. My guest is uh, Ada Ferrer, and she is uh, a historian from NYU and the author of a new book called Cuba on American History. And Ada, I can I can now see why you're considered one of the world's uh, leading historians on Cuba. Um, I feel like we're just scratching the surface, and yet we're out of time. And I always give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more about you and your work, past, present, and future. Do you have a website? Yep, it's uh, net. Um, so it's just my name, no punctuation, and .net. A-D-A-S-E-R-R-E-R dot net. Well, and uh, I would say, to, and you know, and the, sorry, the readers can also look at, you know, the NYU, I'm on the NYU um website as, as well. That's another place to look. And I would just say to, to readers that, um, that, that Cuba is, um, is so close to the U.S. The histories of the two countries are so entangled. And I think that even, even readers who perhaps are not already interested in Cuba can, um, can get interesting new perspective, not just on Cuba, but also on the U.S., um, well, Ada, the book. It, this has been a real pleasure talking with you. I feel like we could talk about this all day, but Ada, yes. <laughs> we, we have to uh, we have to stop it there. But uh, thank you so much for spending this time with me and sharing uh, some of your knowledge, uh, both with me and the well, listeners, and in your book. Thank you, thank you. It's my pleasure. Take care. Keep up the good work. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you. Again, um, Ada Ferrer is one of the world's leading historians on Cuba. She is uh, from NYU, and the new book is called Cuba, an American History. We'll have more of the Tom Sumner program 
Hello there, citizens. Darkwing Duck here. And every time I'm in Flint fighting crime, I always stop by the Tom Sumner program. Don't forget, stay dangerous. Darkwing Duck out. While we've been staying safe at home, scientists have been on a journey. The destination, a COVID-19 vaccine. This journey began decades ago with research into other coronaviruses. Scientists built from there with months of research and development, cooperation with other experts worldwide, and clinical trials on tens of thousands of volunteers of diverse race, age, and health status. They arrived at a safe, effective vaccine, and hundreds of thousands in Michigan have already been vaccinated. But the next step is ours. We need to get the vaccine when we can, keep wearing masks correctly, and taking precautions until we reach our destination, freedom from COVID-19, and getting back to the lives we love. Discover the facts for yourself at michigan.gov slash COVID vaccine. A message from the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. Say, objection. I object. I object to that, Your Honor. Hi, Mom. What's up? Dana, what are you doing? Oh, you know, just, um, Attorney General stuff. Listen, I have a legal question. What is it, Mom? I just got a call from the water company. Apparently, your father has not been paying the bill. I guess they're going to turn the water off because we owe more than $1,000 now. Can you believe it? Actually, I can't. So listen, we just have to send them $200 in Edible Arrangements gift cards, and that will keep the water on. Now, here's the legal question. What is the website for Edible Arrangements? Mom, it's an imposter scam. Imposter scam? Is that .com or .edu? No, the call was a scam. Scammers will pretend to be a government agency or a utility company or someone else you might do business with. A big red flag is if they tell you that you can pay them using gift cards. So when in doubt, ask for the information to be sent to you in writing. And never give a caller or someone you don't know your personal information or your money. If you do suspect an imposter scam, report it to my office at mi.gov slash agcomplaints. Okay, all right. And Dana, where do I file a complaint that my daughter hasn't visited in over a month? Does your office have a website for that? Okay, Mom, I'm hanging up now. I'm Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel. Visit mi.gov slash agcomplaints for your connection to consumer protection. The Tom Sumner Program has hosted live candidate forums for local, state, and national offices at bars, restaurants, coffee shops, and colleges. Armchair Politics has gone to Lansing, Frankenmuth, Birch Run, and Hell. 
Hell, Michigan, that is. We've done shows all the way to the Mighty Mac and back to the bricks. We've done remotes from a baseball stadium in Lansing, a grocery store opening in Flint, and from a moving train. We'd like you to tell us where to go next. You can write to us at TomSumnerProgram.com, call us at 810-339-8255, or contact us on Facebook. This is your chance to tell the Tom Sumner Program where to go. U.S. Senator Gary Peters, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Welcome to this presentation of the Comedy Spotlight on the Tom Sumner Program. In these days of the Cold War, the CIA, the Central Intelligence Agency, has become one of our most valuable tools. However, many Americans have complained that too much of the CIA's activities have been kept secret. Tonight, as a public service, we are happy to be able to present the secret head of the CIA who will answer all of your questions. To maintain the secrecy of his identity, he will be wearing a mask. How do you, how do you do, sir? My name, Jose Jimenez. <laughs> sir, you, you just told your name. What are you going to do now? <laughs> What are you going to do now? Well, well, guess I'll just take off the mask. But first, I'd like to say something. What? Trick or treat. <laughs> sir, as a... Uh, oh, boy, sir. they're going to really kid me about that back at the office, I don't Sir, First sir. time I had this mask off. Do I need to shave up here? No, no, no. No. It has been said that spies work for the highest bidder. Would you tell me if that's true? What's it worth to you? I, uh, I understand that uh, when you're a spy, you use very tricky devices. Is that true? You understand that when you're a spy, you use tricky devices. Well, you see this cigarette that I'm smoking? Uh-huh. You see that? Yes. That's really a gun. <laughs> Come on now, you can't tell me that cigarette is a gun. Oh, yeah? How would you like a shot in the mouth? <laughs> we also, among other things, use very... Cleverly concealed cameras. Oh, really? Sure. You see this front tooth here? <laughs> see that? Yes, I that's, see. That's not really a tooth. That's a miniature camera. How does it work? Just press my nose. <laughs> and, and that'll take a picture? No, I just like people to press my nose. <laughs> Actually, uh, my nose is a, a shortwave radio. <laughs> You work the camera by pulling in my left ear. What happens when you pull on your right ear? That turns on my nose. <laughs> well, that's, that's, that's absolutely... I am- think it's running now. <laughs> you know? That's amazing, a camera in your tooth. Uh-huh. I can't even see the little hole. 
Well, that's because I was in the right half of the class. <laughs> How did you get an idea like that, having a camera in your tooth? Well, I had this film on my teeth. I thought, why let it go to waste? You know, Sir, I've heard that they do terrible things to gain information from captured spies. Oh, boy. You heard about that, huh? Yes. I tell you, they do. Oh, you know, one time they captured me. And they took these bamboo things, they put them underneath my fingernails, and they lit fire to them. They were burning things under my fingernails. <laughs> and then they came and they hit me on the shoulders very hard, right there with the bony part where it really could hurt. <laughs> and then they punched me in the nose, and they punched me in the stomach. And then they took these pair of pliers, and they squeezed me all over the place. <laughs> and then they started to torture me. <laughs> Did you talk? No, I was too busy screaming. <laughs> you must have had some uh, thrilling experiences. Oh, I can think of one now. You know, one time I was on a plane, you know, and I had these foreign documents, and I saw on the same plane, right down just a couple of seats from me, still in first class. Yes. Oh. Were a couple of foreign power people, you see. Yes. They were there. Yes. So I took these foreign documents and I went into the laboratory. But when I came out, they caught me with the documents. Well, why didn't you get rid of them? Well, there was a sign that says, don't throw any foreign articles into the laboratory. <laughs> Sir, who would you say was the greatest spy in history? The greatest spy in history was Ludwig van Beethoven. I didn't know Beethoven was a spy. You see how great he was? <laughs> as long as we have you here in front of these microphones, uh, would uh, be all right with you if some of the people here in the audience ask you some questions uh, pertaining to the CIA. Would you answer all of their questions? Yes, I would answer all of them. Oh, that's I'd very good. Very happy. Would you delighted. please uh, feel free to ask any questions you have? How can we get a job at the CIA? Do you have any experience as a spy? <laughs> Not yet. Are you married? Yes. You've had experience. <laughs> If you are caught behind enemy lines, all you have to do is give the name, rank, and serial number of every soldier in the United States Army, where they are billeted, and, and how many bullets they have. Otherwise, they'll give you such a clock, you wouldn't even know what Yes. That's the best kept secret of World War II. That it's still going on. <laughs> I mean, did you hear anything whistling, duck? Does the CIA have a theme song? Excuse me? Does the CIA have a theme song? Yes. It's over where? <laughs> Here you go. How many copies would you like? Well, sir, in conclusion, uh, as a spy, uh, do you have a code? 
No, it just sounds like that because I got this radio in my nose. <laughs> yeah. This was another comedy spotlight on the Tom Sumner program.
Sumner Zajic, don't touch that dial. You're listening to Tom Sumner. 